my name is Vicki and this is Murder Sandwich, a true crime and mystery podcast. And I am joined today by Allison, who was actually my co-host on my premiere episode. Oh my god, hey! Hey, back again. Back again. Here we... No, like, I'm... Back. Back, back again. again. Shady's back. back. Oh no. Tell some true crime fanatics. <laughs> <laughs> So today is the 16th episode, and we're actually going to be discussing some crimes that are committed on Halloween night. Mm, spooky. Yeah. We want to kind of keep up with the spooky thing since it's Spooktober. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if Spooktober is still a thing. So. I just call it October. <laughs> if anyone could tell me if Spooktober is still a thing, that'd be great. I didn't know it was a thing. Where did you get Spooktober from? I think I made it up. <laughs> so anyone tell us if that's a thing. <laughs> I want it to be a thing. <laughs> So this is the second episode for this week. So considered our murder sandwich double decker. Double decker. Like a chicken club. Yeah, exactly. So thanks for listening, everyone. And let's mow down on some true crime. We're going to start with Ronald Clark O'Brien, or the Candyman, or the man who killed Halloween. Oi! That's not a good man. That's a strong title. That's a, a, yeah. So, Ronald lived in Deer Park, Texas, and he had a wife named Diane. They had a son named Timothy, and then their daughter Elizabeth. So, Timothy was born on April of 1966, so... On this Halloween specifically, he was eight years old. And then his sister Elizabeth was born in 1969, so she was around like six. Okay. And this crime was committed in 1974 when Deer Park had approximately like only 15,000 people there. It's not a lot. Not a whole bunch. I actually looked and it like very much increased in population the year after. Like 200 and something percent. Ooh, was it just a bunch of true crime fanatics? (laughs) I don't think so. (laughs) Okay. So on October 31st, 1974, on Halloween, Ronald took his two children trick-or-treating in the next community over called Pasadena, not in California, Pasadena, Texas. Interesting. Which, yeah, it's just right next door, like 13 minutes away. No big deal. Mm -hmm. And he actually took his two neighbor children with him as well. And so it was just him. Like, no other parents, not the wife, like, no neighbor's parents, like, just him. So it was actually kind of a rainy night, and so they went out kind of expecting, like, be a short, like, trick-or-treating experience. So they just went, like, a couple blocks over. So the kids are, like, all stoked. They're trick-or-treating, and they're having a great old time. And they go up to a home, and they're knocking. No one answers, so, like, Ronald's just, like, standing back there. And so the kids are like, okay, no one's here, and they kind of run ahead to the next house. Mm-hmm. So Brian just kind of, like, catches up to them. He's like, kind of, like, lollygagging after them. And then they, after they come back from the second house, he's like, oh, look, the person from that house that didn't answer, they they ended up giving me candy. And so he, like, produces, like, five pixie sticks. That's not sketch at all. <laughs> it's true. So he just claimed that it was given to him by the resident of the house that hadn't answered the door. So obviously the children think, like, n- nothing of it. So, unfortunately, it does start raining, so they only made it, like, two blocks, and they have to go home. So, at the very end, Ronald ends up giving a pixie stick to his two children and then the neighbor children, but that's only four. So, he gives the last one to, like, a 10-year-old boy that he recognized on the road, like, from church. Yikes. 
Yeah. So later that night, Timothy's getting ready for bed and he's asking, like, can I please eat some candy from tonight? Like, all of us. Like, when did you not ask that ever? When did you not ask if you could eat candy that night? Yeah. I didn't ask. I just did. <laughs> when I was a kid, I actually, like, was so organized that I would separate my candy into three bowls. So I would... <laughs> Nerd. <laughs> yeah. I would do chips in one bowl and then I do, like, chocolate in one bowl and then I do, like, other candy candy. Um, and then um, my parents would be like, well, we have to keep it out here for, like, safekeeping. And then my mom and my stepdad would just, like, eat so much candy. That's so rude. It is rude. I don't think my parents ate my candy. They hit it on us because they were trying to monitor how much we ate. But I don't think they ate our candy because I think they had their own. Terry, like my stepdad, definitely ate my chips. And then mom really liked Tootsie Rolls, which was totally fine with me because I hated them. Oh my god, Tootsie Rolls are so good. I, I still don't like them. Oh my god. Yeah. So he asked for candy like all of us do, right? Whether he organized it like I did or not. <laughs> and he... Apparently, according to Ronald, he asked for the pixie stick. So that will come up later. Apparently, according to him, he asked for it. So Timothy has, like, a lot of trouble getting the candy out of the pixie stick. Like, it's really stuck in there. And so his dad, like, helps him get it out and immediately complains that it's really bitter. Ronald gives him, like, some good old Kool-Aid to wash it down. Because, yeah, like, let's have that before bed. That doesn't sound like a cult at all. A cult. Here, have some Kool-Aid. <laughs> yeah, We're all going to drink it later. <laughs> wink, 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 nudge, nudge. So afterwards, Timothy complained, like, immediately that his stomach hurt. And he ran to the bathroom. He's sitting there. He's convulsing. He's throwing up. And Ronald is, like, holding him while he's throwing up, apparently. And he just goes limp in his arms. And unfortunately, Timothy did die en route to the hospital yeah. less than an hour after consuming the candy. No. I know. Sad Halloween. Very. So news of Timothy's death from poisoned Halloween candy, like, scattered across the community very quickly. And numerous parents in Deer Park and the surrounding areas, like Pasadena and all those communities, they're, like, just handing their candy over to the police and being like, we're scared that it's laced with poison. Like, just check it. So basically, like, no one ate any candy that year. Well, that's wise. (laughs) Yeah. So the police didn't initially suspect Ronald at all of any wrongdoing, but then they did Timothy's autopsy that revealed that the pixie sticks he had consumed was actually laced with potassium cyanide. Cyanide. Yeah. So for any regular listeners, we talked about cyanide in depth with the Chicago Tylenol murders. So we are definitely not shocked by cyanide having a fatal dosage around here at Murder Sandwich. (laughs) So, shocking, it's cyanide. We're familiar with cyanide here at Murder <laughs> Just to be clear, I've never bought cyanide. So, four out of the five of the pixie sticks Ronald claimed to have received were recovered from the police, from the other children that he gave them to. Like, thank goodness none of the rest were con- consumed. Mm-hmm. And the parents of the fifth child were, like, ransacking their house, and they could not find it. They're, like, just tearing it apart, can't find it. So they, like, run up to their kid's room when they get the call, and he's actually holding the pixie stick in his hand while he's napping. Oh, my God. But he could not get the staple out of it. So that's when they realized that the guy had actually cut open the pixie sticks, put the first two inches of the pixie stick full of potassium cyanide, and then stapled it shut. So it didn't have, like, an accurate seal on it that they usually do. So, according to the pathologist that tested all of the sticks, the candy that killed Timothy had enough cyanide to kill two adults, and the other had enough to kill three to four. 
I almost threw up in my mouth. That's sick. For a kid? For a kid to consume that. And like this we're not talking about like a 12 or a 13 year old. Like these kids are like five to like nine. Yeah. Like they're young. That is young. Those are babies. And they're getting poisoned with enough poison to kill multiple adults. Like absolutely ridiculous. So Ronald initially told police that he couldn't remember which house he got the candy from, which is just really suspicious because, like I said, they only went two blocks. Yeah, and it was one of the houses that did not answer. Which doesn't happen very often on Halloween in 1974. No, if they don't answer, you remember that house. Yeah. So they looked into it further, obviously. They checked all the homes on these two streets. No one ever said they gave out pixie sticks. Everyone was like, no, we give out other candy. What's a pixie stick? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so finally he agreed to walk around the block with police to try to see if he could, like, jog his forgotten memory, apparently. Quote, unquote. <laughs> so three laps. And he finally was like, mm, I think it's this house. So his reports... Suggest that the light wasn't on, which, like, why would you get your kids to knock on the door anyway? Yeah, if the light's not on, that's literally signifying I'm not supporting this. Yeah. So, after the children ran off, the door opened, apparently, a hand appeared through the door with five pixie sticks, and he just described the hand as hairy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. Like, you couldn't do a better job. Oh, a hand just stuck out, and I thought it was a good idea to get candy from it. And it's hairy. Yeah, like, you couldn't say, like, white dude, nail polish. it's a bear. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So police obviously looked into the residence, like, that's their first planet of attack. Mm -hmm. It was owned by a man named Courtney Melvin, and he was an air traffic control officer at the William P. Hobby Airport. He didn't get home till 11 p.m. on Halloween night. And he was immediately ruled out because over 200 people vouched that he was there. Yeah. I mean, he worked at an airport. Yeah. So he's probably like, what the dick is happening here? <laughs> <laughs> like, honestly. So investigation continued. And Ronald obviously is like prime suspect number one. Mm-hmm. They're like, this is suspicious. And then they learn that he was over $100,000 in debt, which is equal to about $520,000 in 2020. Mm-hmm. And he had a history of being unable to hold down a job as he had 21 jobs in the last 10 years. Ew. Yeah. Which is like a lot. That's a lot of jobs. <laughs> at this time, he was actually a suspect of a theft at his job at Texas State Optical, and he was totally going to be fired, and then he'd be looking for job number 22. Because mm. why would you what? I just, I want 50 jobs in my life. <laughs> yeah. So on top of him almost being fired, his car was actually about to be repossessed as he had defaulted on several bank loans, mm-hmm. and his house was also being foreclosed on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Shocking. Shocking. <laughs> so this is probably not going to come as a surprise to you. Police also discovered that Ronald had taken out life insurance policies on both of his children months before Timothy's death. In January of 1974, he took out $10,000, which is around like $52,000 in today's money. Jesus. Both Elizabeth and Timothy. And then the month prior to Timothy's death, he took out an additional $20,000 for each child, which is equal to like around one hundred k. Despite the objections of his life insurance agency. Because that's like a lot of money to take out right away. Uh, yeah. Suspish. Soup suspicious. Yeah. 
So Diane, this is Ronald's wife, she claimed that she had no idea about the insurance policies either, like on either of her children. She was like, I didn't know he was doing that. That's, That's weird. also suspicious. Well, because like, why wouldn't she be included? And like, why isn't she the beneficiary on something? Like, mm. why does he only care about his kid's death and not hers? Mm. Weird. Because he get more money with his kid's death? Mm. Well, it doesn't say that he has life insurance policies for her. Mm. Weird. After Timothy died, the morning after, like no grieving, he calls the life insurance agencies right away to see what he can do with the money. Hey, my kid just died, but uh, I need some cash. Like the next day. The audacity of this bitch. Yeah. Like, could you not wait like a week? Could you not wait? Could you not wait? That's the thing. That's the thing. Could you not wait? Full stop. Yeah. The police also learned that he visited a chemical supply store in Houston to buy cyanide before Halloween. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. But he actually didn't purchase anything because the smallest amount that you could buy there was five pounds. And it's like too much. <laughs> five pounds of cyanide. Yeah. So Ronald obviously maintained his innocence throughout this whole investigation. He's like, I did not do this. Although the police never discovered where Ronald bought the poison, like, other than one chemical supply chain store, like, there was no other evidence of it buying anywhere. Which makes sense, like, in the 70s, like, lots of cash, like... Yeah, there wasn't, like, a credit trail or... Like, it'd be hard. Or anything, yeah. So he was arrested on November 5th, 1974. So really, like, five days later. Mm -hmm. And he was indicted on one count of capital murder and four counts of attempted murder. So capital murder gets because it is Texas. Mm -hmm. So there was death penalty on the table. Sometimes Texas pulls in. Yep. So Ronald, not shockingly, entered a plea of not guilty on all five accounts. And his trial was in Houston and it was dated for May 5th of 1975. So during the trial, a chemist actually who knew Ronald testified and said that in the summer of 1973, so two years prior, Ronald contacted him asking about cyanide, just out of the blue, asked how much of it would be fatal. Oh, my God. How do you casually bring that up? Uh, So just, you know, asking for a friend. But how much cyanide would kill one person? How about... I'd like to triple that. Yeah. How about four adults? (laughs) How about four adults? I got five kids here. It's not related. (laughs) Yeah. So a chemical supply salesman also testified and said that Ronald had asked him how to purchase cyanide at one point. Oh my God. Why would you give in to that? <laughs> and then friends and coworkers testified that in the months before Timothy's death, Ronald also showed a very unusual interest towards cyanide and spoke about it often and how much it would take to kill a person. <laughs> Like, could you implicate yourself anymore? Yeah, seriously. You are not doing yourself any favors. And then just to, like, make it even more suspicious, he goes to his son's funeral, his eight-year-old son's funeral, and his sister-in-law and his brother-in-law went up and testified that he was already talking about how he was going to spend the money and go on vacations and buy, like, lavish material items. Not even pay off his debt. He loses a kid. He goes on trial for murder and doesn't even pay off his damn debt. Yeah. Dick. So his wife went on the stand. Good. And she's like, yeah, Timothy did not choose the pixie sticks to eat that night. Like, his father was making him choose the pixie sticks. Oh, my God. Yeah. Game changer. Very much. So, again, Ronald was like, nah, like, I'm innocent. Like, we're good. And his only defense was that the decades-old urban legend that Halloween candy has had razor blades in it and Halloween candy is laced with poison or needles and... 
Like that's it. That was their that was their only defense. Is that like, oh, it's obviously like someone else. Like, look at all these like urban legends. Like it obviously is someone else. Like, why would it be the father? That's your only defense. That's a terrible defense. Yeah. That is that defense does not stand. No. So this trial is where he did get the name like Candyman. So yep. Is there like there's a movie. Is it but it I've seen the movie. Like I've seen the one from the eighties or nineties. I know there's more. There's like I think a new one coming out. There's a new one coming out. It's directed by Jordan Peele, and I'm very excited about it. I'm so excited about it. I saw a preview of it. Oh my god. Anyway. <laughs> but is it like is that Candyman story, the original one, is that related to this Candyman? I don't think so. Because it has that they don't They're not alike at all. Yeah, because the Candyman movie I don't think had anything to do with Halloween. No, it didn't. No. So this is not a true story about the Candyman, unless uh, you were thinking that it was. Exactly. So on June 3rd, 1975, a jury took only 46 minutes to find Ronald O'Brien guilty of capital murder and four counts of attempted murder. And then the jury took 71 minutes to sentence him to death by electrocution. As should happen. Yeah. So after his conviction, obviously Diane files for divorce and she later remarries and her new husband actually ends up adopting Elizabeth. And they live on to live like happy lives. We don't hear from Well, that's good. Yeah. So at this time in the 70s, the men sentenced to death under Texas law were confined to the Ellis One unit near Huntsville, Texas. And then according to a reverend who actually worked there as a chaplain at the prison, he came out and stated that Ronald was absolutely shunned and despised by his fellow death row inmates for killing his child and was, and I quote, absolutely friendless. (laughs) Shocking. Like, thank God. You know what I mean? Like, thank you. And it even goes on to say that the inmates, like, reportedly petitioned to hold an organized demonstration on Ronald's execution date to express their absolute hatred for him. That's how much they hated him. Oh, my God. Well, yeah, if you're a child killer, you don't really get good treatment by your fellow inmates when you get convicted. No. And, like, that's not a myth. You know what I mean? Like, we've said that before on the podcast. It's not. Like, people have to go into, like, solitary confinement sometimes because they're, like, been abusive towards... (laughs) children yeah or like when cops go into when they get arrested for whatever happens and they have to be in not gen pop whatever the the special one is not special yeah you're not special if you go to jail heads up (laughs) (laughs) so unfortunately there was a little bit of drama with his execution dates like as usual right so his first execution date was set for august 8th 1980 but his attorney did petition for a stay of the execution so a second date was scheduled for may 25th 1982 but this date was also postponed so the third scheduled execution date was for october 31st 1982, which was the exact eighth anniversary of the crime. Yikes. So Judge Michael McSpadden actually scheduled this one, and he personally offered to drive Ronald to the death chamber. Dun, dun, dun. This actually would have been the first time that Texas executed an inmate by lethal injection, because they had started to, like, transfer over from that, from electrocution. Right. But the Supreme Court delayed this again. (laughs) to give Ronald a chance to pursue an appeal and seek a new trial. Why? A fourth date was scheduled. This is now for March 31st, 1984. Ronald's lawyer sought a fourth stay on the basis that legal injection was a, and I quote, cruel and unusual punishment, end quote. On March 28th, just 
two days before, right? A federal judge rejected the request. Good. So on March 31st, 1984, shortly after midnight, Ronald O'Brien was executed by lethal injection for the capital murder of his eight-year-old son, Timothy, and attempted murder of four other children. Messed up. Yeah. In Ronald's final statement, he claimed his innocence, stating that he felt the death penalty was wrong. And he added, I forgive all, and I do mean all. Those who had been involved in my death, God bless you all, and may God's best blessing be always yours. During the execution, about 300 demonstrators gathered outside the prison and cheered. And some of them were even yelling, trick or treat. Oh, I like that. (laughs) Yikes, though. Yeah, that's a tough one. Yeah, no, the death chair is cruel and unusual punishment for a murderer. Yeah, like, he could have potentially killed all five of those kids. Yeah, and that would be sentence upon sentence upon sentence upon sentence. Like, what what did he really think was going to happen? He could not have thought he was going to get away with it. How do you think that, like, no one's going to buy a story of, oh, I went up to the house after my kids knocked on the door and there was a hand that came out. Who's going to believe that any... Any parent who cares about their child is going to grab candy from a hand. Yeah, like, he he was just super dumb about it. Yeah. And, like, also, not that I'm trying to justify his actions by any means. No. But in my head, when I was researching this, I'm like, okay, so he wants this money to pay off his debts and, like, refresh his life. And that's not even what he was planning on doing. No. So he wasn't even doing it for any positive purpose. No. It was just to be a fucking dick. Yeah, and the man couldn't hold down a job. Like, just go and... Like, just do a job. Just keep doing it. Yeah, like, if you didn't want this life, why are you here? Yeah, if you didn't want kids and you didn't prepare to financially be able to support even just yourself, maybe reevaluate some things. Yeah, like, you're just a dumbass. Yeah, that was... Yeah. So yeah, he's, he is the reason why people check their candy still on Halloween. Well, thanks a lot, bro. So the next one we're going to talk about is Martha Moxley. So she was actually born on August 16th, 1960 in San Francisco, California. And at the time of her death, she lived in Greenwich, Connecticut. On the evening of October 30th, 1975, so Martha would have been 15, she left with friends to participate in what they called a mischief night in which neighborhood kids would bring bells, you know, play Nikki Nine Door, (laughs) pull pranks like toilet papering houses and all that bullshit, right? Oh, that sounds fun, but also, like, kids, smart enough. Yeah. Like, being the person who has to clean up the toilet paper sounds like literal <laughs> fucking trash. I would, I would want to light it on fire, but then I would just light everything on yeah, fire. Yeah, exactly. So she actually was with the other kids that lived across the street, and this is actually called the Skakel family. And they had two sons uh, who Martha was close with named Thomas and his younger brother, Michael. So I'm just, we're going to take a quick like, little sidestep and talk about the Skakel family and Michael specifically. So Michael's full name was Michael Christopher Skakel, and he was born on September 19th, 1960. He is actually the fifth of seven children. And he was born to Rushton Walter Skakel and then Ann Reynolds. These names sound made up. I know, Rushton. Rushton. I know, sounds so interesting. Ah, she rushed in. (laughs) Yeah. 
So Rushton's sister, Ethel, she was actually the widow of the U.S. Senator Robert F. Kennedy. Ah. Yeah. And his grandfather, George, was the founder of the Great Lakes Carbon Corporation, which is actually a coal company that was one of the largest and wealthiest privately held corporations in the U.S. at one point. Dang. So they're like, money. (laughs) So they like money. Yeah. So Michael's mother, Anne, she actually unfortunately passed away from brain cancer in 1973. So just, this is like two years before this incident with Martha. And this is when he began abusing alcohol really badly. And he became a very poor student. He was flunking out of dozens of schools. They would just ship him off to different schools. Mm. Uh, He also struggled with dyslexia, which went undiagnosed. And he was actually 26. Oh, my God. That's rough. Yeah. So his cousin, uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., later wrote that he was a small, sensitive child, the runt of the litter, with a harsh and occasionally violent alcohol father who both ignored and abused him. So we're off to a good start. Yeah. Yep. According to friends and neighbors, the children of Rushton were given unlimited financial help, like literally just have this all this money. And they were very rarely supervised, especially after Anne's death. Oh, that sounds like a bad cocktail right there. Yeah. So in 1978, this is a few years after the event we're about to talk about, he was arrested for a DUI in New York State. And to avoid criminal charges, his family actually sent him to a school called a land school. There's an accent in there, but I don't know how to pronounce it, so I'm sure I'm butchering it. Okay. And it's in Poland, Maine. And this is where he actually received his first treatment for alcoholism. He later attended Curry College in Milton, Massachusetts. Ooh, that's my last name! Yeah. And earned a bachelor's degree in English. (laughs) That's... My favorite topic. (laughs) Yeah. In the 1980s, he did attend several more drug rehabs before finally becoming sober in his 20s. He also pursued a career as a professional athlete, and he competed on the international speed skiing circuit and actually tried out to appear in the 1992 Winter Olympics in France. Dang. And then in 1991, he did marry a professional golfer named Marco Sheridan, and then they had one child together. Okay. So, flash forward to October 30th, 1975. So, according to friends, Martha was hanging out with Thomas and Michael Skeckle. They were hanging out. There's a few of them there. And she actually began flirting and kissing Thomas. Oh, my God. Scandalous. Yes. <laughs> and she was last seen, like, falling together behind a fence with Thomas, like, while they were kind of kissing. Mm-hmm. And they were near the pool in the Skakel backyard. And this is around, like, 9.30 p.m. Okay. And again, like, Martha just lives across the street. So the next day, like, she did not come home. Her parents were pretty worried. And unfortunately, they do find Martha's body beneath a tree in the family's backyard. In the... Her backyard. Her backyard, okay. So her pants and underwear were pulled down, but she had not been sexually assaulted. Well, that's weird. Yes. And pieces of a broken six-iron golf club were found near the body. And the autopsy indicated that she had been not only just bludgeoned, but actually stabbed with the golf club. Oh my god, ouch. I know. And this golf club was immediately traced back to belonging to the Skakels. Of course it was. Yeah. So Thomas was the last person to see Martha on the night of the murder, so he obviously was prime suspect number one. Mm -hmm. But his father forbade access to any of his school and mental health records. Like, he just put a a stop to basically the investigation. He wouldn't, like, provide any information about him. 
And then the other prime suspect was actually a man named Kenneth Littleton. And he just started living with the Skagels as a live-in tutor. Only hours before the murder. Oh, my God. Like, that was his first day. That's not cool. No. So, honestly, there's not a ton of information about the beginning of the case. Basically, like, it goes cold. Like, they don't have any evidence. It's a very wealthy family. Blah, blah, blah. They're so hiding So, really, their... the family probably just, like, paid a bunch of people off. Yeah, they're, like, hiding their cards, right? Mm-hmm. So, no one immediately got charged. And the case just laid cold on someone's desk for, like, years. Uh, poor Martha. Yes, over the years, Thomas and Michael Skakel changed their alibis for the night of Martha's murder. Michael claimed that he had been window peeping and masturbating in a tree beside... <laughs> I know, dude, it takes a turn. Jesus. I know. So he said that he was like a peeping Tom and he was masturbating in a tree beside Martha's property from 11.30 p.m. to 12.30 a.m. on the night That's of the A long murder. time. An hour? Are you chafed? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And two former students from the Ellen School, he went there later, like I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's actually a treatment center for troubled youths. And they testified that they heard Michael confess to killing Martha with a golf club. Okay. And then one of his one of his former peers, also a student named Gregory Coleman, testified that Michael was given special privileges and had actually bragged, I'm going to get away with murder. I'm a Kennedy. Oh, my God. Yes. But also sad because probably that's a fact. <laughs> like enti- the entitlement. The audacity. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is kind of a sidestep. So this man named William Kennedy Smith, he was tried and acquitted for rape in 1991. But because of his trial and the investigation, a really strong rumor had surfaced that he actually was present at the Skakel house on the night of Martha's death. And he very clearly insinuated that he might have actually been involved. Oh, my God. So this case got reopened. Well, good. Yeah. So Rushton Skakel, he's the father of Thomas and Michael, he hired his own private investigator detective Mm -hmm. in 1991 to conduct his own investigation of the killing separate from the police. And this report was later leaked. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and it revealed that both sons altered the stories about the activities the night of the murder. So obviously it didn't work in this guy's favor. No. At all. <laughs> Not even a little bit. You're an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> so in 1998, I think it was around June, a very rarely invoked one man grand jury was convened to review the evidence of the case to see if they could go to trial. And after 18 months of investigation, it was decided that there was enough evidence to charge Michael Skakel with murder. Very good. So on January 9th, 2000, an arrest warrant was issued for an unnamed juvenile for Martha's murder. So Skakel did surrender to authorities later that day. He was unfortunately released shortly thereafter on a $500,000 bail. This is 2001. And this this happened in 1960. Oh, my God. It's like 41 years later. Yeah. Ridic- like, it's just crazy how long it took. Mm-hmm. It gets sad. So shortly after his arrest, his wife filed for divorce. Good. It was finalized the next year. Yeah. Get out of there. So on March 14th, 2000, Skakel was arraigned for murder in a juvenile court because he was 15 years old when it happened, right? Right. But he was now 55. Yeah, that's confusing. <laughs> So the judge ruled that Michael would be tried as an adult. In my opinion, even when you're 15, 
it is right on the line of being tried as an adult or a kid. So mm-hmm. he doesn't really know if he wouldn't have been tried as an adult back then. Like, right. he doesn't know. Yeah. So his trial started on May 7th, 2002 in Norwalk, Connecticut, and he was represented by an attorney named Michael Sherman. Very confusing, the same name. Mm-hmm. So Michael's alibi was at the time of the murder, he was at his cousin's house, not masturbating anymore. Oh. What? No. Yeah. And then you jur- can't lie about being a peeping Tom after being a peeping Tom. I know. Like, people are supposed to forget that. Right? Like, <laughs> that's the masturbator. Yeah. So during the trial, the jury actually heard part of a taped book proposal in which Michael was actually speaking about masturbating in the tree on the night of the murder. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how it could possibly be the same tree under which Martha's body was discovered the next morning. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Michael also said that he was afraid he might have seen, like, or he might have been seen the previous night jerking off and had panicked. Unfortunately, that part was never played for the jury because the prosecutor said it may have suggested that jerking off would have given the impression that he was confessing. Like, that the jury wouldn't have realized that that's slang for masturbating. Yeah. What? (laughs) I know, which makes no sense for the prosecution to do that. What else would that mean? I don't know. It wouldn't mean anything else. It's 2000. And wouldn't there be some sort of, like, clarification of it? You would think. You would think. Yeah. So, on June 7th, 2002, Michael Skakel was found guilty of murdering Martha and was sentenced to 20 years to life in prison. About damn time. Definitely don't (laughs) hold on to the clapping. It gets fucked, dude. You're going to be like, it's awful. Like, everyone is going to be screaming into their smart speakers. Just wait for it. So he was assigned to the Garner Correctional Institution in Newtown, Connecticut. And in January 2003, so it was about a year later, Robert F. Kennedy wrote a very controversial article titled A Miscarriage of Justice. And he insisted that Michael's indictment was triggered by an inflamed media and that an innocent man is now in prison. Uh, What? (laughs) Yeah. He claimed... That there was more evidence suggesting that that Kenneth Littleton, that live-in tutor, had actually done it. What? I even forgot that he existed. Yeah. And then Kennedy later released a book in July 2016 titled Framed. (laughs) Ridiculous. That is ridiculous. So Michael appealed his sentence, obviously, like they do, right? November 2003 was his first appeal. And he stated that he should have been heard in juvenile court rather than in superior court. And that the statute of limitations had expired on the charges against him. And that there was major prosecutorial misconduct. Okay. On January 12, 2006, the Connecticut Supreme Court rejected Michael's claims and affirmed his conviction. So everything was good for now. Excellent. So the next year, in 2007, Michael now had new attorneys. And they filed petitions to motion for a new trial based on this theory that involved this man named Gatano... Tony Bryant, mm. who is the cousin of the L.A. Lakers, Kobe Bryant. Oh, rip. And this Tony Bryant, Tony is his nickname. His first name is actually Gatano, but people call him Tony. Mm. And he, this Tony guy is actually a former classmate of Michael's at this private school called Brunswick School in Greenwich. Okay. So this was videotaped, apparently, this this interview. This, like, it gets a little confusing, but there's a videotaped interview from August 2003 
in which this private investigator that was hired by Michael and then Bryant said that on the night of Martha's murder, one of his companions actually wanted to rape her. And that's probably why her underwear was down at her ankle. So this Tony guy is claiming on this videotape that his friend wanted to rape her. Okay. And he said that he did not previously come forward because his mother had warned him that as a black man with a white woman, that he would be tagged for the unsolved murder. God, I hate society. (laughs) Me too. So there was now a two-week hearing because of this, like, videotape, right? So, Mm -hmm. again, this is just hearsay. This is just this Tony guy saying his friend said that. Right. It's not the actual guy saying that. No. So it's just hearsay. Which which does not hold up in court. Yeah. So there was a two-week hearing about it, though. In <laughs> April 2007, that allowed the presentation of this hearsay evidence, among a few other matters. And in September 2007, Michael's attorney filed another petition based in part of Bryant's claims, asking for a new trial. Prosecutors formally responded that Bryant just made made up the whole story to play about the case. Like, it's just a play for him. Like, yeah. So it kind of, like, just sits with the court for a little bit. So Michael's new defense team at this time also hired a full investigative team to review existing and new information and that a book was actually written by that Elan school that he went to after. And they argued that no Elan residents who knew Michael other than that Gregory Coleman had ever spoken to Michael about his confession to anyone, which to me means nothing. Yeah. Because, like, cool, that just means you just told Gregory Coleman what's the big deal. Yeah. So, finally, on October 25th, 2007, a Superior Court judge denied the request for a new trial, stating that Brian's testimony was not credible and that there was no evidence of any misconduct in the original trial. Michael's lawyer appealed this decision to the Connecticut Supreme Court, which on March 26, 2009, a five-judge panel of the court heard the arguments on this appeal, and then that panel ruled four to one against the appeal. Good. Yes. So they're not done. They. Oh, my God. I know. This is so unnecessary. I know. Taxpayers are hating this. Yes. <laughs> so on January 24th, 2012, so we're a few years later now, mm-hmm. Michael and his attorneys argued for a sentence reduction, claiming that he should have been tried in juvenile court. <laughs> I know. Oh, my God. On March 5th, 2012, he did lose the bid for a sentence reduction. Good. This is where things get really dumb. No. This whole thing is dumb. I know. it's This is very, like, trial-based right now, but, like, I swear, like, it gets to a point. I swear. So Michael then appealed based on the charge of incompetence against his lawyer, Michael Sherman, at the time of the trial. So Michael Sherman was his lead attorney. He had a few, mm-hmm. but this was a lead. And he testified that Sherman was more focused on fame and money and did not care anything about the trial. He just wanted money. Okay. So... That sent in. So while this is happening, his first parole hearing was on October 24th, 2012. He was immediately denied. And then his next hearing was scheduled for October 2017. But unfortunately, a year later, on October 2013, Michael was actually granted a new trial by Connecticut Judge Thomas A. Bishop, who ruled that Michael Sherman failed to adequately represent Michael Skakel when he was convicted in 2002 Prosecutors did state that they would appeal the decision. Get out. 
The next month, on November 21st, 2013... Oh my god, that's my birthday. Yeah. <laughs> Michael Skakel was released on a $1.2 million bond, along with other conditions, such as how he had to be monitored with a GPS device, could have no contact with Martha's family, must periodically check in over the phone, and is not allowed to leave the state of Connecticut without permission, which is kind of weird, because he actually relocated to New York State. So that's out of the state of Connecticut. <laughs> yeah. In December of 2016, so three years later, mm-hmm. the Connecticut Supreme Court reinstated Michael's murder conviction with a four to three majority decision, writing that his conviction was the result of overwhelming evidence presented by prosecutors and that his legal representation was totally adequate. Unfortunately, this decision doesn't immediately put him back in jail. His bail still like upholds. So, like, so, like, a year later, in January of 2018, this is just a few years ago, dude. Jesus. Prosecutors asked the Connecticut Supreme Court, like, well, we want to revoke Michael's bail. Like, we want to return him to prison and resume his sentence. Yeah. Like, he's supposed to do 20 years. He did 10. He's only halfway done a sentence. Yeah. So, on May 4th, the Connecticut Supreme Court vacated Michael's conviction, and they ordered a new trial. Oh, my God. Yeah, the court ruled that Sherman had actually rendered ineffective assistance when he failed to contact an alibi witness whose name had been provided by Michael Skakel, and that as a result, this was an unfair trial. So they just went back on their unfair trial word. Ridiculous. I don't like this. So on October 30th, 2020, 45 years after Martha Moxley's death, exactly, the chief state's attorney, Richard Colangelo, informed the Superior Court that Michael Skakel, who is now 60 years old, would not be retried for Martha Moxley's murder. They had over 51 witnesses and 17 were now dead. And so he just walked free. I'm sorry. I need to go set fire to something. I'll be right back. Yeah. What the... I know. Like, all of those appeals and all of those things actually got that douchebag released. That... Oh, privilege. That is privilege right there. Yeah. My goodness. Just appeal, 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 and then he finally got off. Like, he murdered her. Yeah. He murdered her, and then he was like, if I'm annoying, they won't charge me. Which... Just to go back a little bit. So it said that, like, the, she was last seen kissing Thomas. Yeah, what's what's he doing here? So I think that Michael was jealous. Probably. Yeah. They're brothers, right? Yeah. Yeah, of course. There's always jealousy in siblings. Yeah. Because, honestly, like, I looked up a, I, a decent amount of information about this, and I couldn't really find, like, a, a motive, but it makes sense because he was, like, innocent. Like, he claimed his innocence for so long, so, like, yeah. why would he talk about a motive? Right. But I think it, he was jealous. Well, yeah, that would make sense. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, she was flirting with both of them, too. That's what you said at the beginning of it. Yeah. And then, yeah, that just... Mostly just Thomas. She was, like, kissing him, but, like, mm-hmm. then Michael killed her. But did Thomas? How do we know that it's Michael and not Thomas? I don't know. Maybe there's two murderers roaming the streets of eastern United States. Well, technically he lives in New York. I don't know where Thomas lives now. Well, they're probably still eastern United States. It's pretty, it's pretty, like, his whole thing, like, oh, I'm going to get away with murder. I'm a Kennedy. Like, get fucked, dude. Like, you're gross. No. You are gross. Yeah. Remember when Bill Clinton didn't get away with, no, wait, did he get away with it? Away with what? Sucking or getting his dick sucked? <laughs> getting his dick sucked? 
Yeah, he got away with that. He didn't get or away with that. He got, he, got, uh, he got impeached because of that. Did he? Yeah. Hmm. I don't pay attention to politics. <laughs> yeah. I just know names and buzzwords. <laughs> I don't like this story at all. I, I just, I, I'm sorry. I mean, it's not your fault. It's their fault. I just don't like them. No, I feel very bad for Martha Moxley and her family. I think that's an absolute tragedy. That well, yeah, because they're never going to know. There's never going to be closure for them now. No. Like, unfortunately, like, I hate, I honestly hate to say it, but, like, her parents are most likely gone now. Like, it, like it's been, like, a long time. Mathematically, that makes sense. But that's, it's just really sad. Like, it's, it's just entitlement. Someone literally lost their life. You literally took someone's life away from them. Yeah. Like, I, when I was reading about all the appeals, I was like, my... Like, that's disgusting. Like, my God. Like, I know it's going to be wordy for everyone, but, like, it, I had to do it all for the end. Well, just the idea to of be like, that he, many appeals to be like, yeah, no, it happened again. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It happened again. Like, this guy is a garbage human And then being. that's it. He actually got out. Yeah. And he got out. And he's still alive. He's still kicking it. Yep. I don't like him. I'm going to find him and slash his tires. I'm not actually going to do that if anybody's a cop. story I want to tell is about Peter and Betty Fabiano. Fabiano. And this is actually like I found reports that it's actually called the trick or treat murder. On Halloween of 1957 in LA, of of course. LA. So Peter Fabiano, he's 35. He's a beauty shop owner and his wife's name is Betty and she's 39 and they're at home and it's a very late Halloween night. Mm. Now they didn't have any kids together, but Betty, I think had like two or three kids from a previous marriage and they're like a little bit older. Okay. So they're turning off all the lights and going around the house. It's like 11 PM. You know, they've been dealing with trick or treaters all night, kind of had a, a night at home, like big deal. Right. Right. So they're going around and then the doorbell rings. And Peter just assumes it's, like, a late-night trick-or-treater. It's, like, weird, right? But, like, it happens, it, it can happen. So he opens the door, and Betty's upstairs, and she just hears him go, isn't it kind of late for this sort of thing? And then she hears a muffled reply, a loud pop, and then a thump. That's sketchy. Yes. So she books it downstairs, and this is when she sees a vehicle speeding off down the road. And unfortunately, Peter's just sprawled out on the floor and he got shot in the chest. Oh my God. Point blank. Yep. So she called 911, but like he just died instantly. Yeah. So because of the nature of the crime, there's like no evidence, right? Like it, mm-hmm. there's nothing. Well, when did this happen? Sorry. So this is in 1957. So yeah, there would have been no like. Nothing. No cameras. cameras or anything. Nothing. So it took investigators almost two weeks to even identify any suspects. So the person that they first named was a woman named Joan Rabel. Now she is 40 years old and she actually worked for Peter Fabian at his beauty shop. And Joan had actually become like pretty good friends with Betty over the years and even lived with Joan for a short period when she was having like pretty bad marriage problems with Peter. Okay. So they were like very tight, Mm -hmm. like besties to the point where Peter was like jealous (laughs) jealous of two girlfriends yeah so he decided he wanted to work things out with betty when they had their time apart and there was conditions of course there were she was never to see joan again and not even say her name in his presence oh girl get out like what what so joan was actually arrested 
under the suspicion that she killed Peter and she just wasn't too keen on him and him limiting her friendship with Betty, obviously. So Joan like immediately denied any involvement and said that she was actually at home the entire night. And the reason is because her car was in the driveway all night. You can get another car though. Yeah. So they investigate and they realize partially true. Her car was in the driveway all night but when they interviewed some of her friends, they learned that she definitely was not home all night. Oh. And that she actually borrowed a car from her friend that night and that 37 miles had actually been put on it when oh she received it back. Oh, my God. Which I would never notice how much mileage someone put on my car if they Oh, my God. I barely even know where the mileage is on my car. <laughs> yes. When I read that, I was like, well, she's more type A than me. <laughs> <laughs> So when confronted, Joan just admitted that she borrowed the car to get groceries. Mm -hmm. And then other than this report, there was just no other evidence. So the police just, like, had to let her go. Yeah. So case is, like, going cold. There's, like, no leads. A month later, they receive this anonymous tip. And they're just like, hey, go check this lockbox in this department store. And they hang up. So when they do, there's a thirty-eight caliber gun. In this lockbox, in this random department store. And ballistics later confirmed that it was actually the weapon who used to kill Peter Fabiano. Oh, my God. There was a sales record for this gun. Of course there was. Yep. And it belonged to someone named Goldine Pizer. And she's 43. And she's actually a lab tech at an L.A. children's hospital. So investigators confronted Goldine, and she um, almost immediately confessed. Whoa. She was like, yeah. So she insisted that it wasn't her fault and that someone put her under a spell. (laughs) Yeah. On Halloween. Yeah. Okay. And that this person turned out to be Joan Rabel. Oh, my God. So Goldine and Joan had actually become really good friends. People may even say lovers. Ooh. Ooh. For a few years. Ooh. So Joan would always tell Goldine what an awful person Peter was. And it had actually become like an obsession to them. So they would get together and they'd have like some wine or some drinks. And they would just talk how shitty Peter was like all the time and just trash Peter. <laughs> and been there. Right. And so Goldine had never met him. But she just, like, hated him. Mm -hmm. So eventually, I don't know how it got to this, they talk about murdering him. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you've never talked about murdering someone you don't like. I mean, no. No. It actually got to the point where Joan just ended up giving money to Goldine to go buy a gun. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah. So the night of the murder, Goldine attempted to disguise herself. So she wore a hat, gloves, mask, and face paint. And then the gun was just hidden in a paper bag. They both arrived at the Fabiano house around 9 p.m. And they sat outside waiting for a couple hours for the lights to start turning off inside the house. And then they could make their move. Which, <laughs> like, what the fuck? And then Goldine went to the door and then Joan waited at the car. Which makes sense because Peter probably would have recognized would have read, Joan. Yeah, for sure. So after the shooting took place, Goldine ran back to the car and Joan kissed her and said, thank you. Dropped her off at her place. And the last thing she said to her was... Forget you ever knew me. And then they just walked off in different directions. Oh, my God. The next morning, Goldine realized that Joan hadn't told her how to dispose of a gun. You obviously put it in a body of water. So <laughs> Obviously. She, everybody knows that. Common knowledge, guys. Right? So she took it to this, like, chic Bullock's flagship store in downtown L.A. and dumped it in a random storage locker. Hmm. Joan pleaded not guilty. 
Goldine claimed insanity, saying that Joan had managed to cast a Svengali-like spell over her that she was helpless to resist. I hate romantics. (laughs) In the end, they both did accept a plea deal for second-degree murder and were sentenced to five years to life in prison. But honestly, there's no, like, there's no reports on how much they served. Really? Yeah, like, I found out that Goldine passed away in 1998 in L.A. Okay. Um... I there's nothing about Joan like she literally just disappeared. I I assume by that she died in prison. Hmm. Back in the day, I I I doubt they do obituaries for people who die in prison. They don't family to do that, right? Yeah, probably. Betty did end up selling the beauty store after Peter's death. That's probably for the best. Yes, get rid of that bad memory. Mm-hmm. And she did remarry in 1966, and there is reports that she passed away in 1999 at the age of 81 in Palm Desert, California. Well, at least she was somewhere very nice. Yeah, there was no um, ever connection that she was part of it, ever. Well, because she definitely wasn't. I don't think that she would have been. No. Because then, like, if she was, her and Joan would have, like, there would have been, like, some evidence of them, like, sending letters or something. Well, yeah. And there would have been evidence of them trying to contact each other after Joan got arrested. Like, there would have been, there definitely would have been a trail there somewhere. Yeah. So I don't think Betty was involved at all. No. It sounds like Joan was just, like, obsessed with Betty, wanted to be with her. And Betty yes. was like, I don't swing that way. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, but I'm straight. Sorry. Married to a dude. Yeah. And I just, like him. It's just sad. It is sad. It's sad that people get to that point in their relationships with other people where they're like, I if I can't have you, no one can. Yeah. And then even to manipulate someone else to like like this what's her name? Goldine. Goldine. Like she had absolutely nothing to do with these people. No. Like nothing whatsoever. And then all of a sudden she gets convicted of murder. Yeah, and she seemed like she obviously I don't want to say obviously, but to me, it seems obvious that she was like easily manipulated, mm-hmm. like shy. And if they, if she was lovers with Joan, she probably felt maybe a little controlled by her because oh, back in that day, like being in a lesbian relationship is like very taboo. Yeah. And you have to put the trust in the person that you're with. So no. Yeah. She probably was like a little manipulated. Oh, sure. Um, or she must have thought so. She pleaded insanity saying that there was a spell put on her. Which means she knows she's crazy. (laughs) Yeah. But, like, I get, like, I understand, like, meeting someone and having that, like, affection where you feel like you're under their spell and everything. But I would never in a million years be convinced to commit murder by a spell from some man or woman that I've been smitten by. And because Goldine, like, almost confessed to the crime, I I think she was the anonymous tip. Oh my god, that's such a weird point. Well, who else would have known? It doesn't say that she told anyone. No, and it she would have say, been the only one to know where it is. It doesn't say she's married. I couldn't find out she's married. It doesn't say she has any kids. So, like, who would she have told? Maybe she told a friend or a coworker. Like, by all means, that's in the cards. Mm-hmm. But, like... But either way, she did something to get found out because she knew what she did was wrong. Yeah, like, when the police showed up, she almost immediately confessed. So she knew that she was, like, caught. waiting for it and was like, oh, finally you got here. Like, I have this problem. <laughs> yeah. It's been really weighing down on my chest. Yeah. <laughs> I 
honestly, there is a lot of a lot of crimes that have been committed on Halloween night. I mean, if you're gonna do it, and I don't do it, but if you're gonna do it any night, it's probably a good one to do it for sure. Yeah, but also if you have black cats, keep them in. Yeah, talking to you, listeners. <laughs> yeah, but this does conclude the tragedies of Halloween night. I guess. Yeah, sure. We'll call it. I do want to say that Halloween night should be deemed for fun or chaotic fun and not for murder. Mm-hmm. Keep it nice nice and light and fun. Keep it clean and fun. Yeah. Well, you can be like, you can roll out on the dirt, but like, keep it clean and fun. For sure. The one that shocks me the most is Martha Moxley, obviously. Well, yeah, that's such a... Yeah. That's such a makes me scratch my head in an angry way kind of story. Yeah, it just makes me think like... Wait, so you can just appeal out of your case? Yeah, like, what is the, the you know, United States law world doing? Usually, according to, like, things I know, you're only supposed to be able to appeal three times. But from the sounds of it, the Connecticut Supreme Court was like, nah, the trial was good. And then they came back two years later, and they're like, actually, we think it sucked. But we're not going to let you actually retrial. Well, this is why I feel like privilege really played a part in that story, because, like, I mean, he's a Kennedy, so, like, he's going to get away with murder. You know what I mean? Like, he's got the money to back himself up. He can get those defense attorneys to support him and to, you know, stand up for him in trial because they're the best because he has the money to buy the best. And he didn't even care about going against his attorney. He ends up using his attorney as a scapegoat to get out of the sentencing. Yeah. Being like, well, he just cared about fame and money. Well, he cared about fame and money because you're famous, and you have money that you're giving to Which, him. Which, like, don't get me wrong. Like, lawyers should be unbiased no matter what, whether yeah. there's fame or money. And by no means am I saying Michael Sherman could have totally shit the bed. But in my opinion, Michael Skakel killed Martha Moxley. Yes, and he's just trying to get his money to get himself out of, out yeah. of actual, you know, prison time. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. Well, thank you for joining me today. Oh my god, you're welcome. Anytime. So you're my first, other than Devin doing the two-parter with me, Yeah, you're my first repeat. Oh my god, and I'm going to repeat again, I bet. <laughs> yes. If you do want to keep up with the podcast, then please follow us on Instagram at Murder Sandwich Podcast. I do update things on there. Oh my god, your little, what are they called? The Mini Mowdowns. Mini Mowdowns, I love them. <laughs> yeah. I do need to post more of them. I have like a huge spreadsheet of them. and you know, Yeah, you need to get more on You know them. how it is. I do. So thank you for all the support. And we will mow down on some more true crime next week. Yum, yum, yum. <laughs> Bye.